A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP and Field CDO at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading contributor to Trino, the open source project, and the Data Mesh for Dummies book that I co-wrote with Colleen Tarto and Andy Mott. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Dimitri Ryaboy, CTO at Zymergen and co-author of the book, The Missing Readme. Some key takeaways and thoughts from Dimitri's point of view. Number one, organizational design and change management is quote unquote, like a knife fight. You are going to get cut, but if you do it well, you can choose where you get cut. There is no perfect org and there will be pain somewhere, but you can influence what will hurt and make it not life-threatening. Number two, there is too much separation between data engineering and software engineering. Data engineering is just a type of software engineering with a focus on dealing with data. We have to stop treating them like completely different practices. Jamak says this quite often as well. Number three, when communicating internally, always focus on telling people the why before you get to the how. If they don't get why you are doing it, they're far less likely to be motivated to address the issue or opportunity. This applies to getting teams to take ownership of the data they produce, but also to everything else. There's often a rush to use tech over talk. Conversation is a powerful tool and will set you up so your tools can help you address the challenges once people are aligned. Paving over challenges with tech will not go well. Number four, Build your data platform such that the central data platform team is unnecessary in conversations between data producers and data consumers. That way, your central data team that's building the platform again, they won't become a bottleneck. Try to reduce cognitive load on the users of the platform as well. They shouldn't have to deeply understand the platform and its inner workings just to be able to leverage it. Number five, quote unquote, data debt is forever. You can certainly pay it down, but data debt typically has a much longer life than even the initial source system that supplied the data. Take it on consciously. Number six, looking to hire or grow full stack engineers for an ever-growing definition of stack, backend, frontend, security, ops, QA, UX, data, etc. Is probably not a great great idea. We can't keep piling new domains on people and expect them to be good at all of them. Instead, look to build full stack teams and tools that that look and feel sufficiently similar that you know data engineering itself becomes very close to backend engineering. Number seven, look for needless delays in work as a sign your organization isn't well aligned with what you are trying to accomplish. 
The cost of coordination should not be a huge bottleneck, especially at a smaller size organization. And finally, number eight, any agreement like a data contract or API needs to be agreed to by both parties. Consumers can't just expect things to not change, especially if they don't let producers know what, why, and how they are consuming their data. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Very excited for today's episode. I've got Dimitri Ryaboy here, who's the CTO of Zymergen. He's also the author of the book, The Missing Read Me, with uh, past guest Chris Ricamini. Um, and we're going to be talking a lot about you know, quite a few things here. Um, Dimitri used to uh, you know, run the infrastructure team, the data platform team at Twitter. So like building and scaling a, a team <laughs> back in the uh, early to mid 2000s or 2010s versus now and how, like, what were the issues that they were running into, but also like, how would he approach it now? And, and kind of that we're, we're, we have a different set of tooling that's uh, available to us and different practices and things like how Zymergen is, is looking at the data mesh uh, paradigm and, and implementing that. Um, how, like, what do we actually get developers to do like in data mesh there's this big question of what should they do and how do we actually make it so they can do it um you know non-disruptive evolution of your architecture and then like just the pain of org change and how we can actually do that in a in a way where we know it's going to be painful but that we can limit the pain or, or choose where that pain goes but before we jump into all of those awesome uh, topics Dimitri if you don't mind if you could give people a bit of an introduction to yourself and then we can jump into the conversation at hand yeah sure thanks Scott and thanks for having me uh, fun topics to to discuss I hope we get to all of it um, so yeah right now I'm the CTO at Zymergen I've been at Zymergen for six years um, and Zymergen is a biotech company uh, that makes, uh, to make the, a long story short, it's sort of a sci-fi future, uh, but we uh, enable high throughput uh, genetic engineering of microorganisms, uh, and there's a lot of automation, robotic automation, uh, machine learning, and, and software involved in enabling that, in addition, of course, to uh, lots and lots of uh, bright scientists. And uh, prior to Zymergen, I was uh, for a number of years at Twitter. I joined when there was 100 or so employees and then uh, went through the IPO and, and a bit past that and all of the scale up that was uh, uh, the, the old timers may remember the fail whale wars where Twitter was just falling over all the time. And uh, uh, that was a fun time uh, to be there. So lots of lots of learnings. I was charged with the data platform as well as the experimentation platform later on. Did that and then had a variety of other data related roles and uh, and things uh, before that. And, and and I don't know if you mean if it's fun or quote unquote fun, right? <laughs> like well, it's yeah. It's uh, when you're in the middle of it, it's not that fun. But when when you look back on it, that's some of your fondest memories, right? That's kind of an interesting yeah. way that experiences and memories work. Yeah, uh, that's, uh, that's uh, I don't know, is, is Imergen trying to change the way that humans work in that way? Or not? <laughs> oh, gosh, sure hope no. Okay, so um, so I think it's it's a good uh, place to start with about like, you know, you built and scaled one of the largest data platforms that exists on the planet today, right? And so like, when you were building that out, and thinking about the challenges that you ran into, what do you think are still kind of relevant to today? What do you think are the things that people would kind of be bumping into out there in the market? And, and then like, we can talk about what you ran into and how you might approach it differently. And, you know, or you might just say, yes, if I had this tool back then, it would have been easier, but this tool didn't yeah. exist. And so, you know, uh, you can't just uh, backwards compatibility and, and shift something from, you know, 2022 into 
2012 or anything like that. But yeah, uh, there are definitely some tools where uh, it would have been helpful to have them back then. Um, so let's see. Um, so Twitter had a, a number of problems that many companies even today won't have, right? It was generating gobs and gobs of data, and it was going through this very uh, painful sort of migration from uh, a reasonably simple architecture that they started out with that uh, wasn't scaling anymore as um, it was becoming uh, one of the top web properties uh, with uh, particular to Twitter problems of tweet fan out and other things that I won't get too nerdy about. Um, but we were ingesting a lot of data. Uh, we needed to analyze it. And when I got there, it was the classic sort of, if you want to know how many users you have, um, you uh, ideally would run a select count uh, on a copy of the production user database. Uh, but that had started uh, locking up. And there were really fun things with, because we were hitting MySQL scaling uh, problems. There were whole fields in the user table that were uh, completely overwritten and made into bit masks. Uh, so like there's some field called, you know, option selected at, and it's a date field, but actually uh, every bit of that date field has a meaning that is like a Boolean option of something is turned on or off for that user because we couldn't add columns anymore. So that's what we did. Um, all kinds of mess, right? So you take that sort of thing and you say, let's do analytics on it. Um, it's kind of impossible. Um, so right when I came in is when we sort of said, okay, we need to start pulling all the data off of these systems. We need to get server logs of different events and putting them into what would now be called a data lake. Back then it was just called into something. Uh, the something was Hadoop. That's another dead technology nowadays, I guess. Um, and and then it went from there. And very soon we were ingesting 100 terabytes of data a day and figuring out how to just scale that part uh, as well as make it actually useful and available. And there were a few things that we did um, that I think were really smart. Uh, one, very early on, we went to structured logging. Uh, so we weren't just ingesting sort of any random log that a server produces. The company standardized on Thrift. Of course, nowadays you might not choose Thrift. You might choose Protocol Buffers or Avro or maybe even JSON schema or JSON with JSON schema. Um, but regardless, we had structured logging, so you knew what the different columns actually were. Um, but that uh, really wasn't enough because as the variety of data applications at Twitter exploded, we started doing machine learning, spam detection, recommendations, uh, various kinds of analysis for like when to send what kind of email notification or other things, uh, prediction of user churn, um, just plain old analytics, um, every team was producing data and every team was using data and there was a lot of hidden dependencies. Um, and we had to develop a bunch of uh, technology, both to kind of maintain the scale, uh, but also um, to help us manage uh, that complex web uh, of dependencies. Uh, because inevitably, some team ships some update to some you know iOS feature that breaks logging somewhere and now like, spam detection uh, stops working and you, and you get a page in the middle of the night and you have to figure out that, right? Um, and uh, to jump a bunch of years forward, that's one of the reasons that uh, the notion of data mesh kind of resonated me when I read the, that original post that Jamak wrote is because that was something that we wound up going to organically within Twitter um, and going away from sort of the small data engineering team has responsibility for understanding everybody's ETL jobs um, and the complex web of dependencies, like what exactly is this machine learning team depending on that they might not even know they depend on, and building tools to make that visible to uh, cut ourselves out of that conversation so that the, you know, the spam team can talk to the iOS team and say, we were used to get the signal from you and now we don't, what happened? Or better yet, build teams for the uh, application teams so that they know who is dependent on them and they know when they change things accidentally so they can have those conversations proactively, not when there's an incident, right? And we were kind of on our way of, of getting there. And, and I think Jamal had a very uh, powerful way of uh, explaining the problem, the problem that I had lived uh, and 
proposing a vision for how uh, systematically one can can approach solving it. Uh, we sort of stumbled our way into that, but that was, uh, but it was very similar and somewhere in the continuum of that uh, transition to a, to more of a data mesh. Yeah, I've started to use that for like that first blog post of the the, the song of "Killing Me Softly." It's like killing me softly with his, his song, tell my whole life with his words. Like that's the song. Yeah. That, that's kind of the way that a lot of people were like, oh, wow. Okay. Somebody actually put it down on the paper and yeah. what it all means. And that it's not, you know, this, you know, you think about death by a thousand cuts or whatever. It's not this cut or that cut or this cut. It's the whole picture of, of how data has just not been working because we're just getting cut and we're just trying to always um, address each cut. And then the other, the other thing that I I wanted to highlight in what you said was early going to that structured logging. And I think, um, that's a challenge for a lot of people right now about common structure of anything, like agreeing on standards internally. Um, so I, I would love to get into like how you'd even think about kind of pushing that if let's say you were to you didn't have your background with with Twitter and you were to have to go in now and talk about how do you actually find that that like structured way of doing something because a lot of people are very very far down the the path and they don't have that structure they don't have you know the different domains have been storing everything in every which way that they want and so yeah. you know if you go to a new format you might not have backwards compatible data and all that stuff but like how would you approach that challenge because that's a big challenge for a lot of people with data mesh do you mean like the actual transition on a, on a technical basis or do you mean kind of how do we have these conversations kind of both like <laughs> if you've got any secrets on the technical but i think a lot of it is it's less about the actual end solution because there are a lot of different ways that it could be a good solution but it's yeah. also like how do you even round up the information to make a decision. How do you? How would you approach that challenge from all all aspects? If you've got some some uh, sage advice, if you don't, and it's just like just talk to people. That's kind of you know. I I think it really is just talk to people. I think these days, um, if you can explain what the pain is and what problem you're trying to solve, the conversation tends to be pretty reasonable and straightforward. And then you get you know, bogged down in the technical details of how do we actually do it. And, you know, we have these scripts that parse things by commas or whatever. Um, people just want to understand why and what you want from them, right? If you just say we need structured logging and everything should be JSON and they go, great, here's your JSON message is, and then you have your giant text blob again, um, that won't work. If you explain what you're trying to do, and that goes for any of these conversations, right? This is just kind of basic engineering management, right? Like you need to explain what the problem is if you want people to actually solve it. Um, and there's plenty of analogies in the non-data world where uh, you can point it and say, we're trying to do that, but for data, right? So if you're talking to people who are writing backend services, you can say like, look, remember when you used to write REST APIs and have to document them one at a time and it was a total disaster and you couldn't add anything or if you did or remove anything like it was difficult to evolve and then you start doing things like open api or you start doing things like grpc or where things are self-describing right and they go yeah that's way better you go okay yeah now we want that for data like data is a way you're also sending messages it's just you know it goes into a storage and then it lives there forever so you don't even get to ignore the fact that you used to say it in a different way right so it has even more momentum and then people get it Right, like everybody's dealt in some way with data evolution. It's just for people who aren't dealing with data at rest, they're not thinking about the fact that this stuff is forever. Right, so that's another thing to highlight and why you need uh, ways to uh, to move forward. But again, anybody who's ever tried to update a moderately complex Python program knows all about versioning compatibility. So you can point at versioning, you can point at semantic versioning, you can point at what happens when you like remove features in a later release. People get it. Yeah. Do you do you think that um, like I think one of the big challenges that's also a big opportunity is exactly what you said of so many of the the things uh, that we're trying to solve with data have been solved in software engineering and we don't want to tightly couple our solutions to the software engineering because 
there are there are different concerns and different issues and things like that. But it's also a lot of them are at least rhyme if aren't exactly the same. Yeah. But like, well, I, I'm I'm not sure I even follow your your question right now because I've never been a particular fan of separating data engineering and software engineering. It's a particular engineering domain. We happen to deal with data at rest that a lot of people get to ignore, but it's software engineering, right? Like when people say that data engineers are different than other software engineers, that's like some sort of weird artifact of organizational design from 2002 when, you know, data engineers were hired into teams that reported to the CFO or something. Um, and then got stuck in weird backwards areas of, uh, you know, not being, being considered kind of not part of engineering and different criteria apply and so on. Um, data engineers are engineers. There's data engineers in software organizations. They create complex uh, software, uh, be it the fundamental software itself, like you know databases or Presto or other things, or Spark, uh, or the software that leverages those things to get to insights. It's software, right? Software. Data engineers are just as capable of writing some service as service people are capable of writing. Uh, data pipelines in fact often it's the same person in smaller companies like i i just want to push back on this like data engineering versus software engineering it's software engineering it's just a kind of software and and what i would say is one that's not standard i mean yes that's exactly what jamak has been arguing for the whole time of like why do we have these different things of like someone's a developer versus a software engineer versus a data engineer versus an analytics engineer versus a everybody's just doing engineering, like learn how to do software engineering if you're a software engineer. And that I mean it's speciation, it's fine, you know, like we can we can say that you have a particular specialty, but let's not lose the fact that like actually they're fundamentally like a lot of us have the same degrees and went to the same classes you know or learned the same material you know through other ways but like this is all kind of it's much more self-similar than it is to like i don't know sanitation engineering right like that's a totally different field but but the the practice within data has been so separate and and you know you look at kind of quote-unquote best practices and things historically and especially kind of common practices, it hasn't been applying what we've learned from engineering to data. And so like when you are taking these these practices, because people are trying to figure out how do I take this practice from engineering, from software engineering, and bring it to my data practice. So when somebody is looking to do that, should you should you start kind of not by trying to copy and paste from the software engineering or like, how would you approach that? Because I think that's that's one of the biggest challenges. Jamak's gone and said, here are these 15 different practices that we should take from elsewhere, you know, around like CICD and, you know, reliability engineering yeah. and all this stuff, and then apply them to actually how we do data. But we don't have that blueprint. And a lot of people are struggling with, okay, yeah. how do I actually do this? How do I... Yeah, I mean, there are some differences that are kind of specific. Like, look, um, CI/CD for front-end engineering is also difficult because, like, the HTML divs move around all the time, right? And it's just, like, hard to understand how to simulate the actual click-throughs, right? So, like, there is a, you want to do CI/CD on front-end applications, there is a bunch of tricks, and it's a fast-moving field because people are kind of figuring out how to do that. Um, It's much less uh, predictive than sort of, straightforward, you know, a program that has a known input and a known output, known desired output. Uh, with data engineering, like, sure, there are going to be with CI/CD, for example, uh, there are going to be problems because often you just need a very big input or generating synthetic data isn't going to be the same as as real data. And, you know, you'll spend more time in data generation efforts than you will in, like, actually recovering the, the benefit. Um uh, so th- there are problems and when we have to figure them out, but also like these are not magically different systems. Like you have to understand the concept and look at the systems and, and get them because you're an engineer and you can figure it out, right? Like uh, to some extent, I don't really understand why this is a thing. Like It's a thing. I've heard it. I st- I've been doing this for 20 years, probably been doing data engineering. I still don't really understand why it's a thing. Maybe it's some, you know, hangover from when people were doing 
drag and drop like Informatica or Talent pipelines, but where you weren't programming, but everybody else was been programming, right? Like Informatica's biggest competitor in 2005 was two guys with Perl, right? We were programming. <laughs> Those are programs. This is just programming. It, I think it's that the data practice in a lot of these organizations has been so separate and it hasn't been about actually uh, software engineering. So a lot of what you're just saying is, um, it, but it like kind of your approach can cause people who haven't been as focused on the engineering aspects that are in yeah. the data team to kind of, you know, recoil because it's like, oh, so you're saying that I can't do my job anymore. And it's like, no, you can, you can learn how we've approached these things. You know, you don't have to all of a sudden learn to fully code if you're, <laughs> you know, a, um, a uh, director or senior director or VP of analytics that all of a sudden you have to learn how to code all of your own pipelines and things like that. It can be helpful, but yeah. like to actually understand how that works, but it's, uh, I mean, if you're a VP of analytics, you don't, you, like, you have to know analytics. You're not doing software engineering. You're not really doing data engineering for that matter, right? Like you're figuring out how to derive value out of data and do the, do the analysis, right? The, the implementation hopefully is down to somebody below your level. Um, I hear what you're saying. There are, there are some people for, for whom that's maybe a threatening statement. Um, and I think there are functions that one can do. And, you know, also like if your job now involves making sure the pipeline doesn't break um, randomly or you want to fix how it, 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 if there isn't a pain, there isn't a reason to have the conversation, right? So first off, if the world is functioning fine and you're fine where you're at, great, leave it there. If there are problems, yeah, you need to maybe learn new techniques to solve the problems. It doesn't necessarily need, mean you need to learn Scala and like become a Spark expert or something. Um, but sure, there may be techniques in other fields that you can borrow from and you read them and learn from them. Yeah, I think I think a little bit of what you're you're pointing at is something that I've I haven't voiced too much, but I, I've been feeling more and more is the people leading data mesh implementations are taking on too much cognitive load of trying to be everything to everyone from all aspects of the data uh, life cycle. And, and that's just, you don't have to be an expert in everything to understand how to do this stuff well, right? Like, oh, what, yeah, what you have to do is understand the, the, the high level concept, right? You have to understand the pain, like what is causing the pain? Shamak lays it out very nicely. You know, it's fairly straightforward to understand that where the pain comes from. And if it resonates, you go like, okay, yes, I feel that pain. That is the pain. This is the source of the pain. And then you need to explain to other people what the pain is because you probably have other teams that you're trying to like foist some of that work off on because, you know, they're the data producers and you want them to become responsible for their data. Um, so you need to have that conversation with them explaining why it's important, why you're asking them to do more stuff than they used to be able to do. That doesn't require you to actually know the technologies. Right, that doesn't re require you to tell them how to do stuff. Right, they have teams of software engineers; like they'll figure that stuff out. What they need to do is accept the responsibility that actually data exhaust of my, you know, iOS app is just as much a feature as you know the record button. Yeah. Right. And if the company doesn't buy into that, you already have your answer. Right. Like data is not valuable. You should go find another job. Yeah. Exactly. I think a lot of people are just like kind of in that uh, that need that little bit of of support, but also that bluntness of like, if this is going to be super important to you and your company doesn't value data, you should be looking for a new <laughs> organization. Right. Like either the company is behind it or it's not, right? And oh, now we've really digressed from the whole Twitter thing. Uh, but, uh, you know, how do you have that conversation with the overworked manager of, you know, the iOS engineering team to whom you say, like, I need you to create a data contract and live by it. And they go, what? <laughs> I have, like, iOS reviews that are tanking, and I've got, you know, this weird process over here, and, you know, the whole, whole build system changed. Um, so how do you have that conversation with them? And, and that's where I think um, you need to give them the tools and, and the people, right? Uh, we... I don't remember, unfortunately, right now who started this conversation on Twitter, not at Twitter, um, about like how much are we putting on a on a software engineer? Like, how much do they actually? How many jobs do they need to do? Because there's 
the programming and there's also your QA engineer now too because we shifted that left and also security engineer because we shifted left that left and also you know DevOps right so you should also be your ops person and like those are those things are true and if you do it naively you just like wind up with one person doing the job of six people and you can't do it anymore right um, uh, and, and there is room for specialty and so on right so we we can't also make everybody a data engineer uh, in the sense of knowing all the systems and knowing all the jargon and knowing all the uh, all the techniques right like if they're a really great iOS engineer like let's not distract them from that but their team their team's responsibility should include being responsible for the data they produce or whatever teams right i'm just using iOS for whatever reason because it's an example um so yeah. the team charter expense it doesn't necessarily mean that every individual needs to learn the stuff right but just as we say full stack teams are important and you're going to have a designer and a front end person and a back end person um you know kind of prototypical uh team these days um well maybe you also need a data person or maybe you need two back end people and they both are comfortable enough with sort of writing services as well as understanding the data stuff and that's kind of a a good combination of skills um or some other thing but basically yeah, if we're going to ask teams to take on more responsibility, we need to give them more resources. And those resources may come at the expense of the centralized data team because the centralized data team now won't have to have context on every single data producer and what exactly they do and for whom and how that data gets transformed and so on, right? Like Because now they're operating a data platform that allows these things uh, to be owned um, without having a lot of deep technical expertise on how the platform operates so the data the central data team's job becomes give people a platform that they can operate without becoming experts but being able to actually own their data quality their data definition their data evolution and have the conversation with consumers of their data or producers of their data yeah i've been using the phrase of if you give people additional responsibilities without additional resources that's a dot 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 not nice move and that I use a different move uh, or a different uh, phrasing rather than not nice when I'm not on the podcast, right? It's just, uh, it's not, it's not okay to just throw additional stuff on there. Wait, I can't swear on this thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get the explicit tag. Um, I, I don't mind it, but uh, you know, I, I don't want to get that tag. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Um, I, I think this actually does transition well into what were you seeing at, at Zymergen that made you decide like, what were the pain points that made you decide to move away from that central data team? What yeah. what did you learn from it? Like, what would you tell people that uh, some mistakes maybe that you made so that they don't have to go down the same thing, some anti-patterns or patterns yeah. or things like that? Uh, with Zymergen, the story was quite different from Twitter because, for one thing, a much smaller engineering organization, um, the whole software engineering organization reported to me, so you'd think I'd be able to pull these things off better. Um uh, we started off with sort of your more traditional, we have a data engineering team um, and we have different feature teams and, you know, we have a services team, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, what we saw was that, uh, well, fundamentally, Zyvergen is very data oriented, right? Because all the software is internally facing uh, and it's all about collecting data on various scientific experiments and then using that data to, decide on the next set of experiments or make conclusions about experiments and so on, right? So unlike your sort of web startup type uh, example, this is very data-driven. Um, and we found that uh, for a lot of our, uh, the features that we were developing or the kind of capabilities we needed to develop, um, we needed to get a lot of teams talking to each other in order to get anything done. Um, and that's the problem that I kind of wanted to get to, to solve because it was really slowing things down. Um, you know, we were using two week sprints and, you know, you didn't get into the sprint. So you're going to get to the next sprint. The next thing you know, something that actually took a week and a half of implementation kind of, well, actually took a month and a half because of all the handoffs. Um, and they weren't even complex handoffs. It's just that people were doing other things, right? So the coordination cost was really, really high. Um, and so we wound up, uh, reorganizing to where we um, made the data engineering team very small and they were basically responsible for like running Kafka, running the databases and various migrations and making that stuff really slick. Um, and then 
taking the data engineers and putting them into feature teams. Uh, and uh, there's some selection bias here. The data engineers that we hired were, you know, fully functional software engineers. Um, so they uh, uh, that went really well because they were really interested in actually getting closer to the to the actual domain. The reason they joined the company was they were interested in science. They were interested in what the scientists were doing. This got them closer to having that impact versus kind of moving Python YAML back and forth, Python and YAML. Um, so they got a little closer to what is the problem we're actually solving, and it gave those teams a boost in terms of uh, their ability to uh, manage you know, the real-time uh, feeds and to understand how to leverage the platform because those folks have built the platform, so they, uh, they could bring that expertise with them. So it was uh, a, a pretty good win all around uh, there. And then at that time, I think we also brought in Snowflake, sort of the central data repository, and it became much more clear, like, where do you put your data and how do you protect it from becoming a de facto API? So um, creating different schemas for sort of where your ETL lends things and where your actual data product exists, which may be just a view, but like it became that indirection uh, became much more easy to manage. Uh, and the people who could control that were now part of the feature team so they could we could reasonably ask them to to own it this is funny because this is a conversation that literally i was having on uh, linkedin earlier today about kind of data contracts and exactly what you said of if there's data available and then the consumers uh decide that you have this contract that there's like this api that they're like this is this is the way it's going to be even if they haven't had that conversation with the producer then, you know, like great expectations when Abe Gong was on, he was talking about that there's kind of two ways that people use great expectations. And the first is kind of as a defensive mechanism where the consumers just decide that they're in a contract and the producers have no idea. Right? Mm-hmm. They just say, here are our expectations. And if this thing upstream breaks, uh, then it, the contract is broken. And, and, you know, they're not necessarily running to them and going, you broke our contract. But at the same point, there isn't a de facto idea to go and talk to the producers and say, here's what we're trying to do. Like, if you're making changes, let us know. Or if you have more context that would actually yeah. help us to understand this better, what is that? Like, I just, I'm just kind of shocked by how often that's, that's like a, a mind blown yeah. kind of situation. Yeah, that's a, and you know, the, a great uh, way to check. Uh, uh, where's the alert pointing at, right? So if like your great expectation pipelines run, runs and something breaks, does it point to the consumer or the producer? Who gets alerted, right? Like whose problem is it? Well, if it's the consumers, um, you know, like you set up those expectations, you didn't talk to the data producer, like what do you expect? Uh, and if it's pointing at the producer, then, you know, the producer is responsible for fixing it. Of course, when the consumer just arbitrarily sets this up and points it at the producer, you have a different kind of conversation because you don't just get to point, um, you know, projectiles <laughs> at other human beings. You, you can't just add dependencies on somebody else. You don't. You don't get to just. Uh, that's that's. Uh, I mean, you can do it and suffer the consequences, right? <laughs> Which may just be a stern talking to, right? <laughs> So how did you how did you take that? Because a lot of people are looking at uh, decentralizing their their data teams in, in certain ways, whether they're embedding a data engineer or embedding data engineering concepts into them and they're doing training and having kind of these uh, kind of tiger teams that go around and, and help all the different domains, however they're doing that. But like, right. how did you kind of keep your ways of working or develop new ways of working around that? Because people right now are like, okay, I've had this centralized data team. Now you're saying I've got to decentralize it, but like, how? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we had a small, relatively small engineering team to begin with. So a lot of things can just be handled by having a conversation about, about whatever issues are coming up. Um, and uh, the other main uh, tool here was putting people with the knowledge of how the system works into the team's uh, that we're asking to take on this responsibility. Like you said, you can also train people up. You can, you know, hire more. Uh, those are reasonable in some ways, more difficult in other ways, easier uh, uh, paths to do that. Um, 
but I think just clarity around like what you're asking people to do. Um, and then, you know, there will always be gray areas. There will always be like, you know, yes, it's my job that's failing, but it's failing because something weird is happening in the platform or maybe it's not, maybe it is actually after all my job and the two teams need to talk to each other. Um, you're not going to avoid that. Right. Um, and, uh, I think for managers, it's important to keep an eye on, on these interactions and make sure that, um, you know, there's growth and learning happening as, as these uh, types of conversations happen. Um, and the ball moves forward versus just kind of cycling in, in place. Right. And it's the same thing with any kind of services platform team and uh, teams that write the actual services, right? Like there's the team that operates Kubernetes and then there's the team that operates an app that's launched into Kubernetes. And then they say, Kubernetes is not rescheduling the pods. And the team that operates Kubernetes says, actually, you didn't request the right kinds of pods. And they say, well, how was I supposed to know that I was supposed, you know, that I needed to, whatever, ask for the right kind of affinity or something, right? Like, great like these things will be missed mistakes will be made as long as people are like actually having that conversation and learning and learning where to look for you know to self-help or how to distinguish between this a system problem versus an application problem right at any boundary where teams interact you're going to have these kind of problems this is not specific uh to like data versus non-data teams um it's just one more instance of it with its own particular kinds of failures that, that you need to navigate. Um, but it's the same with any kind of boundary. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, and, and I think a lot of what you you just even said, a lot of things can be handled with just a conversation. If you knew how many people have said about that sentence on this podcast, it probably comes up on about 30 to 40% of episodes because so much of what we try to do is solve it with technology when it's much easier in a lot of senses, in, in a lot of ways, it's much easier to solve it with uh, or, or to address it with just conversing with each other and context exchange and saying, yeah. what are we trying to do? Like, let's let's well, focus on that. I mean, I, I agree with that. But also, I would say in a lot of cases, there can be technology that makes the conversation easier. Correct. Right. Uh, and, and, and that part is important. And there's a bunch of... Uh, Companies that I guess the, some of them use data mesh in their marketing and so on. Um, you know, buying their product won't suddenly make you data mesh compatible or whatever kind of nonsense, but it may give you useful tools for enabling those kind of conversations and enabling those kind of organizational structures. Right? You also can't ask people to just pave over everything with person-to-person -person conversations. Right? Like. And, and that is the data team's uh, task, I think, figuring out how to provide those kind of bridges, that kind of visibility. Uh, one of the first things that we built uh, at Twitter as we sort of started really growing uh, the number of producers and consumers um, was uh, a, a data catalog tool uh, called Eagle Eye that basically we instrumented uh, all of the readers and writers into Hadoop uh, so that we could automatically see who is uh who, like which programs are reading and writing see changes in you know this program used to read from that source and now it's reading from this other source um and provide like this whole catalog as well as the whole graph and uh there's a few of these things now that are available in open source and commercially uh and there's a standard called open lineage which uh julian the dem who um uh, was part of the team uh, uh he then went on to start a company and that company got acquired um but anyway they they started open lineage for the kind of data lineage problems um there's a bunch of other projects out there uh, you want to be able to see that graph so that it becomes easier for you to have that conversation can you just go and ask everybody and like read the code and figure out what it's reading and then do get blame to figure out who's writing that and so on and so forth sure it gets, you know, the, the technical requirement to doing that becomes high, the time it takes becomes high, and the whole thing is just full of friction. So having a tool really helps. So sure, yes, there are, technical solutions are useful and important. They're not the whole thing. They're there to enable the conversation, but that doesn't, I, I wouldn't dismiss their value just because they don't actually fully solve the problem. Yeah, I, I 
always say that the um, tech is there to help you address your challenges. And, and I, you know, I think what you were just saying there as well is, okay, you need something that highlights what's going to make it easier to address or solve this tech or talk, right? Like, do you want to do it with tech or do you want to do it with talk? Well, all the tech enables the talk, right? Yeah. Yeah. And like, uh, I'll tell you that at Zymergen, again, some fairly small team, we don't use those kind of tools because there's few of us we, we know, right? We're not confused about which of the 17 different organizations moved what, right? Like, we have a few uh, pizza teams, as they call it, and you generally know, right? So you can just go and ask. Um, if we were, you know, five times bigger, we definitely would have tools like that because you need it for that complexity of an organization. I think there's a very, very big question that we could go into of like, what are the responsibilities we actually give engineers? I think uh, if we want to cover at all the other things that we were planning on, which I'm, I'm okay either way, whatever you want to do, but uh, we can only go a little bit surface level on this. But like, we were talking about this like earlier in this conversation as well about cognitive load and dropping new things into to teams and responsibilities and not trying to put them all on one person, the full stack engineer, especially when you start to think about data mesh, that they have to now also do data is it, you're, you're going to find one out of, you know, a thousand people that can actually do that well. And, you know, they're going to quickly realize that they're more valuable than you're able to pay them and that you're burning them out by trying to make them do everything. So like, how do we think about what are the new responsibilities? How do we how do we try and do exactly what you talked about with the platform of make it as easy as possible that they they have to understand what they've got to do, but they don't have to understand necessarily the inner workings of exactly how to do, you know, a software engineer doesn't have to learn all of data engineering versus how does data engineering work and how does it how does it change the data so that they're actually capable of doing that? Or, or do you think it, you should have specialization in every single domain? And how do you think about that? Well, I, I think I have two answers here. One is like, how deeply do you need to understand the platform that you're operating on um, and, and think through, you know, consistency of reading from data streams and things like that. And, and that's where I think the, the right technology can really help. Um, and, uh, there's a lot of folks walking, working a lot on on tools to make working with data feel like working with other types of things that people are used to, um, so that the it doesn't feel like adding more responsibility or adding new kinds of skill. Like it seems mostly the same, right? Like if you take um, uh, creating kind of more old school ETL jobs, kind of an art in itself versus writing uh, a data processing pipeline in, in something like Daxter or or Flight uh, becomes uh, kind of just a straightforward Python program and you have to learn a couple of new annotations. And suddenly like, yeah, you can write a Flask service in Python or you can write a Flight uh, job uh, for ML learning and they kind of all feel the same. You know, it's not a huge expansion of duties. Now, monitoring for quality, understanding how to debug, like all kinds of things, the more we kind of give people tools there, the more we can ask the same engineer to take those things on. Um, but then uh, there's also the question of sort of data modeling, right? And understanding how to deal with uh, the fact that, uh, you know, data debt is that forever, right? Because uh, you store it and you might read it five years from now and you still have to be able to read it or you have to be able to actively rewrite things into whatever the modern, the, the newest schema is and so on. Um, that takes a little bit more uh, experience and that's where maybe uh, we're looking for, um, for people to specialize a little bit more, um, thinking through how to best represent data um, how to deal with the fact that uh, it's going to be more long-lived than an RPC message uh, and so on. Uh, so I think that's where there's there's a bit of difference. Um, and then uh, the more kind of better tools, and that's something that is still to come and looking forward to the new wave of, of startups around that uh, for 
you know, testing data contracts, not like data engineers should be testing the data contract, but uh, the data producers should be able to test it just like they test everything else about their code, right? If it feels the same and it gives them uh, feedback, not after they've deployed the iOS app and went through the app store review and all of those things, and then suddenly somebody tells them that they're producing bad data, but it tells it them when they run their regular tests, um, and they know what to do about it, or uh, however it winds up uh, happening that we sort of can inject those kind of uh, checks into their normal workflow. Uh, I think that's where it's much more of a, let's build the right technology so that we can make uh, the job feel mostly the same for the engineers while putting the responsibility where it belongs. That was really rancid. Did that make any sense? No, it, it did. There, there's a couple of things. I'm going to push back real hard on one thing. Um, But like a lot of what you said, like is kind of uh, talking to Maroxa and things like that, where you have tools and, and, you know, talking to Nick Schrock as well, uh, Elemental and about Dagster and how it is very much about like the, if the software engineers are going to be doing this work now, we have to create tooling that actually works with the way that they work. You know, we we had... uh, Gioran and Auden from Nav on, and they were talking about, you know, Gioran was talking about building a data platform. And he said, I can build the best data platform on the planet. It's going to be so amazing. And no software engineer will want to use it because it's going to be for data engineers. It's going to be for really data folks. And so I have to figure out their their ways of working. So I think that's really important. The, The place where I want to push back was where you said data debt is debt forever. Because I think in data mesh, that's something that we're trying to get away from, where we have the conversation with people that things might go away, right? Like the thing that you are reading right now, we have to have an active conversation because if I don't know that you're reading it, I'm going to to put it away. Like the product thinking means things sunset, things change, and that it doesn't necessarily, you know, if this is crucial to you, I need to know that so I don't just change it for the sake of changing it. And, and we're really thinking about those. But do you think with data mesh that 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 any tech debt that we take on that data debt is forever or, you know, because I think it's, it, is it a pipe dream to say that no, like data consumers aren't, aren't are going to be OK with that, even if you yeah, have that. Active I, I, I see what, yeah, I see what you're saying. And uh, I mean. Uh, it's dead forever until you pay it down, right? So you perform a migration or you sunset something and say it's no longer available and you get your customers cool with that, that's gone, right? Uh, I was thinking more of, you know, if you're developing a a service um, and you have some API that's a little janky, uh, you can change it and update all your clients and you're done, right? Uh, Whereas... uh, it takes a bit more effort than that with with data because, um, you know, the the just because you change the producer and you change the consumer doesn't mean that the consumer can the, the consumer still wants to consume the old data. So now you either say old data is no longer available, or you need to rewrite it, or you need to have some sort of on the fly rewrite, or you need to do something, right? There's debt there, and it doesn't just go away because you stop sending corrupt messages, right? Like all the corrupt messages you sent, they're still there, corrupt, stored in a database, right? You still need to deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow. And maybe what you do is you declare bankruptcy and you say, we're just going to delete them. Fine. But you need to do something. Yeah. Well, and I think that's where exactly what you talked about earlier of getting yourself out of the conversations, right? Uh, I... I I reference Office Space quite a bit on on this podcast. I haven't even watched the movie in like 10 plus years, but there's the guy who's, you know, taking the requirements from the customers and bringing them to the engineers. And he's like literally physically supposed to do that. But his, um, his, uh, his assistant is the one that does it all the time instead of him. And so like, um, so what do you do here? Like getting yourself out of those conversations and having them actually talk to each other is, is really crucial, but it's also hard. But when you have that, then the producers know, can I make this change? Yeah, and it requires some thinking, right? Because you you don't just go like, oh, uh, you know, we're going to drop that column or we're going to add this field or whatever it is. Uh, you know, you need to actually think about uh, 
the migration path and not just sort of how to update the customers to consume the new data, but also how to make the old data consumable, right? Do you create two tables, V1 and V2? Do you rewrite all the old data? Do you like update your view to rewrite something? Uh, if it's a new field that has important information, like what should the customer expectations be about old data that doesn't have that information, right? Do you have a way to backfill it? Um, those those become topics that you can think about. And they're not that difficult, but you just need to know to consider them and what your options are. If you don't have a layer of indirection in there, good luck. I, I talked with your co-author, Chris, about this too, where like data producers can't have right now in a lot of cases can't have empathy for data consumers because they don't know what people are consuming and they don't have the, the tooling to be able to tell what is is being consumed off of what they're doing. So they have to be able to make changes to their application. And, you know, the consumers just get kind of screwed because there isn't a, a framework or communication me- mechanism for them to understand it, right? Like yeah. you, you have to have empathy for them to be able to do their job. And so them doing their job breaks the consumers, but they have to either say, okay, I'm not going to break anything and be static or I'm going to do my job. So I'm going to focus on doing my job. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, these, these conversations are trade-offs and they're difficult conversations. And in, in large orgs, uh, this gets really complex because uh, it becomes non-trivial to, to figure out where to draw your line of, of your data domain, right? Um, so uh, taking, for example, let's say a social media application, uh, you have your Android client and the Android team around that. You have your iOS client and the iOS team around that. And they produce two similar but different applications, right? And then you all need to produce some sort of events that describe what the user is doing so that you can do something for them, right? Uh, so you can split them up into an Android team and an iOS team. Uh, and they will do their own thing, and they will produce slightly different data. And good luck to somebody downstream trying to reconcile it and build ML models for people who like have two phones, right? Um, because the same event has different things, or maybe one thing is one event here, but three events over there, etc. Right? Uh, you can, or you can enforce the same scheme on them, but it's going to like poorly match both of them, right? Or you can somehow like mesh them together. And say like actually we're going to have one app that's compiled to both platforms because that way it's consistent. But now it's kind of more of a crappy experience for iOS and Android. And there isn't really an obvious solution because depending on what you're actually optimizing for, the one of these things or maybe some other solution is the answer. Um, and you have to choose your pain. And you referred to this um, in the, I think in the in the intro. Um, there isn't a silver bullet. Uh, once you get past a certain size, these questions become as much organizational questions as there are technical questions. In fact, probably more so organizational questions. And once you figure out what the organizational structure is, then you bring the technology in. And uh, and I call organizational design, org design, it's 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 like a knife fight, right? Like either, either way, you're going to get cut, right? Like people who are good, they get to choose where they get cut, so it's not mortal, right? So like, you're trying to figure out the organization. There isn't a perfect organization. Just give up on that. Know that you're going to get hurt somewhere. Choose where you're going to get hurt. Uh, that's going to be your trade-off and and go with that, right? And then stick to your guns for a while. Let it play out. Yeah, it's it's probably not the uh, the nicest analogy to be like, hey, you are going to get cut. So, <laughs> but, but it's, I think it's, it's very- It's realism. True. Being yeah. real with people is nice. Don't <laughs> sell them on a pipe dream and because then they will dislike it when it blows up in their face. Yeah. So I, I know we're coming up on time here, but um, do you have, like, we were going to talk about this and I know it's a very deep topic. So just again, if we can get shallow level at all, but talking about setting yourself up for- evolutionary architecture, right? Like how do you, how do you set yourself up for that? Do you have, do you have anything, any resources you would recommend people go read or look at or anything like that? Because data has been so much about trying to create this platform that is future proof and it doesn't work. And so then we can't evolve it and and we always have these challenges. So is there anything where you can recommend people 
know, without having all the answers, but like, where can they go to learn how to do this a little bit better? Yeah. Uh, gosh, I have two very conflicting, uh, pieces of advice. One in direction is your friend and two don't put it in direction until you actually need it because, uh, then you have early abstraction and that's an enemy. Um, that doesn't actually give anything, anything to anybody, anything to go on. There's an O'Reilly book called Building Evolutionary Architectures, Support Constant Change. Um, uh, Neil Ford, Rebecca Parsons, and Patrick Kua. Um, it's very thin for those who are viewing the video. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff in there. Uh, it also doesn't really give you a recipe, but it gives kind of a good overview of different approaches. Uh, so that's one place to look. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, it's tough because you can't build for every possible kinds of kind of evolution, right? You kind of need to make a call about where you're mostly likely going to need to change things, like where, you know, least and, you know, be, be ready for that. I guess another thing is if you're early, don't be afraid to just scrap things. Like sometimes the right thing is to just throw it out and do it again when you learn something new. I think that's especially important when you think about data products. Like I've, I think it's a bad approach, but I think I've talked to a couple of people who are saying, I kind of wish that we could just decommission each of our first like five, 10 data products because they've got too high of tech debt and it's better if we could just replace them. But organizationally, the consumers aren't okay with that, but we would replace them with something better. And so like, but like we have to get to a place where people are comfortable with that. But it's it's I think we're a ways off. And people are, I think, pretty a little bit familiar with that book, because I want to say that one, that's where they really talk about fitness functions, which is something mm -hmm. that a lot of people in data, data mesh talk about. But I think it's also where they coined the term architectural quantum which is kind of infamous in, in, uh, in data mesh because most people absolutely hate using the, the, the word quantum instead of data product, <laughs> but I think it helps. Uh, I think that came out of data dri uh, domain driven design. Um, oh, it was already. Okay. But, but I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I may be wrong about that. Yeah. I, I just know that they cover it quite a bit. I know that, um, Jamak uses the, uh, direct definition from that book, at least in, in a couple of her things. So um, uh, maybe that's where it came from. Sure. Yeah. But, um, well, Dimitri, this has been super, super helpful. I know, uh, we're kind of at, at time here, but, uh, is there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to, or any kind of wise words that you'd wrap the, uh, the conversation up with? Uh, I, I think my, my wise words were all about the whole, uh, getting cut in organizational design rant. Uh, so, you know, rewind and listen to that again. <laughs> Um, I'm sure there are going to be people who would like to follow up with you. Uh, where's the best place to do that? What would you like them to, you know, to follow up about? And I'll drop links to those in the show notes. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I'm on Twitter, twitter.com slash square cog. Uh, that's where you can find me uh, reasonably active. Um, and uh, yeah, buy my book, Missing Read Me. It's for new engineers. Everybody listening to this is probably an experienced engineer. Buy it for you or for your new grads. They'll say thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I haven't read it yet, but uh, if it's by both you and Chris, I can guarantee that it's probably a, a pretty good read. So, um, well, Dimitri, thank you so much for spending your time here today and, and sharing your wisdom. And thank you, everyone out there as well for listening. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Dimitri Ryaboy, the CTO at Zymergen and co-author of the book, The Missing Readme. You can find a link to his Twitter and a link to his book in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month -month basis. You know, read kind of 
throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.